Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, well, good morning, friends. It's great to be together today. My name is Ryan. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, um, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's so good to be back with you. I'm really thankful for Josh and Estevan, who preached over the last two weeks and just did a great job. And um, I, I was up teaching at Mount Hermon and had a wonderful time ministering up there, but it is so good to be back with you and to be opening the Gospel of John once again with you. Uh, I can remember when my college roommates asked me, did you have the DTR? Did you have the DTR? See, there's a, a point in every relationship where both parties have to decide, am I in? And it requires a conversation, a conversation where you have to sort of delicately figure out, is this person as into me as I am into them? Where you have to figure out, do they see this moving somewhere, like maybe toward marriage? And, and as the clash sang, you have to figure out, should I stay or should I go? Right. And that conversation is called a DTR, where you, say it with me, define the relationship. I can remember when Kelly and I had this conversation. See, we'd been paired together as a backpacking guide team, and on day five, I had fallen in love to the point where I knew if I could talk her into it, I was going to marry this woman. And she had mentioned offhand on our trip, hey, if you ever want to come down and visit me in my hometown of Durango, I would love to have you come down. So I played it cool, and I waited two days after we got off the trail, and I called her. Remember when phones were attached to the wall, right? So I called her and her dad answered the phone. See, see, students today, teenagers today, you will never have that experience. Her dad answered the phone and I said, hi, this is Ryan, is Kelly there? And I could hear him yell back and say, Kelly, Ryan's on the phone. And Kelly yelled back, Ryan who? <laughs> now, did that throw me off my game? Absolutely not. So I said, hey, um, Kelly, this is Ryan Paulson. And I um, was just wondering if the invitation to come down and visit you still stood. And she said, yeah, it does. And I said, well, how about this weekend? And she said, that works great. So I went to my dad and I said, dad, I need to borrow the car. I've got to go see about a girl. And, um, and he said to me, well, all the cars are in use this weekend. I'm really sorry, Ryan. I said, no big deal. I went out, I bought a car. Now... Now, in hindsight, I can see how this could go one of two ways. Like, this is either really romantic or this is stalker territory, right? <laughs> now, luckily, we ended up getting married, so it was romantic, but it could have gone the other way. I'm just saying, just saying. And so I got in my car, new car, and I drove down, and uh, we spent a few days together. I got to know her family, and, um, and, and towards the end of our time that weekend, we had the talk. And so I laid it all out there. I said, um, Kelly, like, um, I feel like God's called me to be a pastor. I don't think I'm ever going to have a ton of money. Um, I, I want to serve Jesus' church. And that's what I want to do with my life. How do you feel about that? And, um, and evidently, she felt better about me after a few days than she did when I called on the phone and Ryan hooed me. And... Um, <laughs> 
and, and she said, you know, I've, I've always known that I wasn't going to have a, a ton of, of material possessions and that kind of stuff isn't important to me. And I really want to be a part of seeing what Jesus would do through my life. And it was that moment where we defined the relationship. But those, those conversations are hard. They're hard because the DTR conversation limits your options, doesn't it? I mean, we don't, we don't like our options being limited. It's the reason that you wait until the last minute to respond to the Evite, right? You're waiting to see, am I going to get a better option? That's the reason that when you have a party and you send out an invite, you need to call 90% of the people to ask them, are you coming to my party, right? They, they didn't miss the email. They are waiting to see if they get a better offer, right? And we, we, we do not like our options limited. It's the reason that polyamorous and open relationships are on the rise. And I think the same holds true in our relationship with God. We don't like our options limited. But in this conversation that we're going to read about today, Jesus is going to call his disciples to a DTR to say, where do you and I stand? Where are you at with us? And that's the conversation at the end of John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, would you open there with me as together we study Jesus's DTR conversation with his disciples. Now remember the context. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, Jesus feeds 5,000 men and about 20,000 people up on a hillside with one kid's lunch that had a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And people were like, this is amazing. You should be our king. And Jesus, along with his disciples, they disappear to the other side of the lake and they have some time just by themselves. And then he tells his disciples to get into the boat and start going across the lake. And he stays there. And then he starts moonwalking across the lake to them in the middle of the night and says, do not be afraid. Which, I mean, if you show up moonwalking across a lake, that's probably what you'd have to say to the people you were meeting as well. And so he shows up, tells them not to be afraid. They get to the other side of the lake and then a crowd starts to form. I mean, you feed people with a few loaves of fish and a few, uh, a few loaves of fish, a, a few fish and a few loaves of bread and you're gonna gather a crowd. And so Jesus does and he starts to teach this crowd and listen to what he said in verse 35 of chapter six. He said, I am the, what? Say it with me, church. The bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the crowd is like, yes, the bread machine is back. We want more of that. And they're thinking back to what happened on that hillside and they're going, well, Jesus is just gonna keep blessing. He's gonna keep producing something out of nothing. He's gonna keep feeding our bellies. But then Jesus throws down the gauntlet and he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you exactly the way that they felt about it. Everybody's looking at him going, what did he just say? And just so that they didn't miss it, he said it five times in his teaching in John chapter six. 
five times. Now, if you're a part of Jesus's PR team at this point in time, you quit. You quit. I mean, you think being Joe Biden's speechwriter or press secretary is hard. Try recovering from this, right? This, this doesn't play well in any culture, but especially back then. It's one of the reasons that the early Christians were called or considered to be cannibals, right? It didn't go over well. And so listen to what happens next, starting in verse 60. Are you there? So when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. That's an understatement. <laughs> who can listen to it? And they're not saying like, who can hear it, but who can receive it? Who can take it in? Who can respond to it? Verse 61. Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, there are two questions that frame this entire conversation at the end of John chapter 6. The first question is, are you offended? In the Greek, that word offended is the word skandaliso, and it's where we get our English word scandal. Like, is this, do you view this as a scandal? Does this does it disturb you that I told you to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Like, how are you doing with that statement? Do I offend you? And I think, here's the deal, you guys. I think that we have whitewashed this question and Jesus' statement to the point where we would go, well, no, it doesn't offend us. We know, Jesus, what you were saying, and it's a metaphor, and, and we shouldn't take it literally, and we can sort of whitewash it, and we're not offended by it, but I want you to let it offend you today. To just get your mind back in maybe the way that they first heard it. And most of the crowd was offended. So most of us should probably be offended also. I mean, we're good at being offended, right? Like that's part of our cultural ethos. Like we're an offended people. I think 99% of us were offended by one of two things over the last few weeks. We were either offended by Barbie the movie or we were offended by Jason Aldean's song, Try That in a Small Town, right? 99% of us were in one of those categories and we were offended. Like, so, so let's get back to that, right? I don't think we need to like tweet our offenses or respond to them in the way that we often do, but, but let's try to really listen to what Jesus said. And maybe we respond back to him like so much of the crowd did. How, how dare you? What are you, Jesus, what are you thinking? That's a really hard teaching. That was question number one. Are you offended? Jump down to verse 66. Question number two. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You think? So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? So here's where the DTR starts to kick into high gear. Will you stay or will you go? Our, our, Jesus' second question is, are you going to leave me? And there seems to be a sense of, of almost sadness in his voice. Like we've walked this journey together. You've seen me do miracles. You've seen me heal and feed. And, but have we gotten to the point where I've offended? Have we gotten to the point where you're going to choose to go a, a different direction? It's interesting to me that Jesus is completely and wholly unconcerned with keeping the crowd. 
He doesn't have an interest in trending on Twitter. He doesn't seem to care about his shares on Instagram. I mean, one of the great marks of a self-confident leader is that you don't need to pretend in order for people to like you. You don't need to agree in order to get people's approval. And Jesus has that in spades. He is throwing down the gauntlet because Jesus is not interested in gathering a crowd. He's committed to building disciples. And he knows that in order to build disciples, he's going to have to thin the crowd. Because he knows that the lukewarm crowd will eventually wear off on the passionate disciples and the transformational power of the gospel will start to wane if people are allowed to just ride the fence perpetually and never make a decision about who they believe Jesus is. So he calls them to account. Are you offended by me? And see, Jesus is not interested in being the bread dispenser. Like he's not interested in having that kind of relationship with you, where you just simply add him and his blessings to your already prepackaged life. He's not interested in being reduced to a bumper sticker on the back of your car. He's not interested in you wearing coming to church like a status symbol or a religious duty where you just add it to your life, but the rest of your life is completely untouched and unchanged. Jesus holds out an invitation and he asks people to decide, will you follow me? And see, this is where I think we get Jesus wrong. We've read in the Gospel of John a number of times where Jesus and his disciples will say, come and see. Come, come, come and see. That's why we have programs like Alpha here. We want people to come and see. We want people to have space to examine the claims of Jesus, to really wrestle with his vision of what it looks like to live in the, the kingdom of God, to wrestle with his words like in me and me alone are eternal life. But there comes a time where we must decide, do we believe it? Do we believe it? One of the things that's most perplexing, and I guess I could say even just a bit disturbing about Jesus, is the way that he responds to people's unbelief. I mean, think about it with me. Jesus always pursues, but very rarely ever chases people. He very rarely tries to talk people out of leaving him. I mean, think about the youngest son in the parable of the prodigal. He comes to his father, asks his father to cash out his inheritance and give him his share. Is this a good decision or a bad decision? Terrible decision. What does the father do? Cashes out, gives it to him. A story of the rich young man comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? They have a whole conversation and it ends with Jesus saying to the rich young man, sell everything that you own, come and follow me. And it says the rich young man went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus doesn't say like, dude, rich young man, like you're gonna regret this moment. This moment is gonna haunt you every single time you put your head down on the pillow reconsider. Think about how great I am. Think about what I have to offer. You don't want to make this decision. And Jesus doesn't have that conversation with him. Or let's up the ante just a little bit more. In a few months, we'll be studying John chapter 13. And we'll get to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And he'll come to Judas. And he'll have a conversation with Judas, knowing that Judas is going to betray him. And listen to what Jesus says. What you are going to do, do quickly. That's it. Like, why not, Judas, 
if you do this, you are going to be the epitome of an illustration of betrayal for the rest of time. Judas, you're going to regret this decision and it's going to haunt you. Judas, rethink it. Think about all the things that I've done. Don't do it. And Jesus doesn't have that conversation. What you're going to do, do it quickly. The worst decision that's ever been made in the history of the world. And Jesus just says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Now, we know from Scripture that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But what that looks like in the ministry of Jesus is him pursuing, accomplishing that desire that all people would be saved by extending invitations to people to follow him. And Jesus knows, Jesus knows that just like loving a spouse, becoming a disciple cannot be forced on anyone. Sure, he can woo us by his love, but we must each decide if we deem him to be lovely. And see, here's the ironic sort of twist in all of this, that it's the same thing that causes people to reject Jesus that actually causes others to say, I'm in, I'm in. And let me show you what a few of those things are. Because all of this depends on the type of soil that Jesus' teaching lands on in our soul. Verse 62. What if, Jesus says, what if you were to see, hypothetically, the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Like, what if you saw me float up on a cloud back to heaven? Would you believe then? And I think Jesus' point in saying this is you can't convince somebody who doesn't want to be convinced. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is, say it with me, church, no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So he says, listen, you couldn't make it to God on your own unless God acted on your behalf Unless he came to you, you would be absolutely doomed to destruction because the flesh is no help at all. So Jesus says, well, you're offended by eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm not done offending you, so listen up. The flesh is no help at all. The, the flesh, your own production, your achievements, your good works, when you stink, you stick the dismount, all of those things are of no help at all. Zero, zitch, zip, nada. They don't help at all. And I think a lot of us, we're like, we're, we're willing to let Jesus like pick up the bill, but we want to leave the tip. Just, just a little bit of me and the rest of it is you. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. No, there's nothing. Your flesh, your achievements, your production, your good deeds, they cannot help you at all. Our best works do nothing, but Jesus' words bring life. And at this point, don't we want to raise our hand and go like, they don't do anything, Jesus? Nothing at all? Like, that's a little bit offensive to us. 
Because most of us, we look in the mirror, and and here's what we see. (laughs) Does anybody else live in a place where they can hear the coyotes at night? Um, they, were go, they were going at it last night. And what I mean by going at it is they were destroying somebody's chicken or rabbit last night. And you can just hear the screams. It's like a cry of a baby. And these coyotes, see, here's the thing about a coyote. A coyote can fend for itself. A coyote can feed itself. A coyote can find water. Like you don't need to put a bowl out for a coyote. He's or she is good. And I think a lot of us, we go, I'm good. I can, I can fend for myself. And here's what Jesus' teaching is showing us. You are not a coyote. You are a puppy. That's who you are, right? This is my dog, Finley. This is him waiting at the outdoor dinner table for his food, right? If Finley were to get out and escape and had to survive one night in the wilderness, he would be dead. He would be done. He is incapable. He cannot do it. He is of the same species, but he does not have the same skill set as a coyote. And here's what Jesus is saying. This is you. This is you. Your flesh is completely useless. Your production, your achievements, your ingenuity. This is you. If God doesn't act on your behalf, you are absolutely doomed. Jesus is telling the crowd in no uncertain terms that they are incapable of achieving, producing, or earning the things that their soul longs for most. Unable. One of my my favorite bands is Need to Breathe, and they wrote a song on a few albums ago called Able. Listen to a few of the lyrics from it. They said, there's a a host of hurts we come across. Anybody want to say yes to that? Life is full of hurt and pain, none of which alike, from the air inside the birthing room to the darkness where we die. So in between like these two bookends of born and dying, there's a ton of pain and there's a ton of sorrow. There's also a ton of joy, but it can be a lot to carry that pain. And though I feel I'm just as strong as any man I know, I am not able. I'm not able. I'm not able on my own. And Jesus would go, you're right. Does that offend you? Does that offend you? Maybe, maybe it should. See, you're not able to achieve your way out of your pain. You're not able to produce your way out of your failures. You're not able to earn your way toward wholeness. You and I, we are not able. And friends, that is where the gospel leads us, but it is not where the gospel leaves us. See, the good news is that the greatest things that you have in your life, they are received. They are not achieved. Yet yet the flesh is useless. It is unable to lead us into the kind of life that we want. But God's spirit is not unable. God's spirit is not impotent. God's spirit is not powerless. God's spirit has the ability to give life. And so Jesus calls his disciples at this really offensive sermon that he gives to be dependent on spirit. Not on flesh, but dependent on spirit. And here's the game changer. Here's the game changer. If you read what Jesus is saying here, 
Jesus is claiming that the Spirit gives life through his words. My words are spirit. My words are life. And the almost unanimous interpretation of this verse throughout the history of the church is that the words of Jesus are the vehicle of the Holy Spirit. You want the Spirit to take root in your life. You want to walk with the Spirit. Meditate on, soak on, live in the words of Jesus. So I started to think, like, how in the world do, do words become spirit and then life? Like, what is it about Jesus' words that have that type of characteristic to it when other words fall short? I'm so glad you asked. There's, there's three things that I see when I look at the words of Jesus that set them apart. Number one is there's a truthful quality to Jesus' words. There's a truthful quality to Jesus' words. They cut to the heart because they flow from the heart of the Father. More on that next week, okay? But they are pure light. They contain no contaminants, and they do not need to be filtered at all. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, talking about words and the power, wrote, and he said, words are a means by which people are brought to realize the truth about their lives. How many of you have had the words of Jesus do that to your life, right? Like they, they just cut to the heart and they illuminate because they have a truthful quality about them. But here's the second thing about Jesus's words. They have a transcendent beauty. They have a transcendent beauty that they seem to, if you're willing to accept them, draw you in because they speak to the things that are most important to the human soul. They give hope. They give peace. They give light. They give life. They have a beauty to them that we, that we long for. And then finally, the words of Jesus have a, have a creative power. After all, yes, this, is, this is the Logos. This is the, the son of the living God. And through him, all things came into being. There's not anything around us that didn't come into being through his initiative. So that means that he can still speak a word and he can still create in your life today. Amen? He still has that power. His words are spirit and his words are life. Listen to the way that Isaiah wrote about the words of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my, what? Word be that goes out from my mouth. So when Isaiah's writing this, don't necessarily think only scripture, although that's one application. Think the words that Jesus spoke, the words that God speaks. It shall not return empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's words take on a life of their own because they're able to birth new life in us. They become spirit. When Jesus speaks a word. And, and see, here's the deal, you guys. Spirit is the way that we begin this journey with Jesus. It's not through our own efforts and it's not through our own flesh. It's through God working on our behalf. And, but that is not just the way that we begin. That is the way that we walk every step of this journey. That the same way that we're redeemed and saved is the same way that we walk. 
It's his spirit that empowers us to forgive. It's his spirit that sanctifies us. It's his spirit that Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, does miracles among us. To walk in the spirit means that we yield to his direction. We yield to his control. We follow his lead. And we say to him, we need you to exert your power over and in us in order for us to become the people and walk in the way that you have called us to walk. My words are spirit, Jesus says, and my words are life. And the moment we forget that it's the spirit and we start relying on the flesh, that's when we lose all life. Jesus would say back to you, does that offend you? Does that offend you? You're the puppy, not the coyote. Does that offend you? It did many of his first listeners. They started to walk away. It says, and after this, many of his, say that word with me, disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, this is the first time that moniker the 12 is used. See, Jesus talks about disciples in wide swaths, but these 12 will eventually become the apostles. He said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Like, are, you, are you out of here also? First question, is it possible for disciples to turn back and to no longer walk with Jesus? Is that possible? According to this text in John, it absolutely is. And we'll talk about that sort of that nuance in just a few moments. But he, you can sense the sadness in his voice. Like, are you guys going to be out of here too? Is this too much for you? That you're the, you're the puppy and not the coyote? That I'm calling on you to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Is that, is that too much for you? And no surprise here, Peter is the de facto spokesperson for the disciples, for the 12. And he stands up and he answers the question, Lord, to whom shall we go? I love that answer. Because he doesn't say, no, we're not offended. Totally good with that. He doesn't say, no, no, Jesus, like, we understand what you're saying. We understand that this is a metaphor. You're not talking about cannibalism and that you just want us to feast on you. Like, we, we totally get that. That is not Peter's answer. Peter's answer is, not options. Like, Jesus, you've ruined every other option. You have the words of eternal life. You're also mixing in some things that are really challenging and offensive. But you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed or trusted and come to know or experienced that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe a little bit offensive. That, that whole eat your flesh and drink your blood, maybe, but, but we're out of options. I think Peter's saying, I have shopped the marketplace of ideas and I have found your ideas, Jesus, your truth, Jesus, to be that which I cannot let go of and that which will not let me down. See, but here's the deal. We live in a culture where we view doubt as more intellectually honest and more intellectually superior than we do faith. Uh, listen to the way that author Charles Bukowski put it when he said this. He said, the problem with the world, now just a quick time out. Anytime somebody starts a statement with the, the problem with the world is, 
Like, we should lean in. Listen up. What's the, of all the atrocities and pain in the world, what is the big problem with the world, Charles? Tell us. The problem with the world is that intelligent people are full of doubts while the stupid ones are full of confidence. That's the trouble with the world. You didn't know that, did you? But I think, I think he's onto something here because we've adopted this, um, this idea that to doubt is more intellectually honest and superior than to have confidence or faith. And that has, has bled its way into the church as well. We see many people walking through deconstruction, and I think deconstruction is a, is a necessary journey to a, to a certain extent. But deconstruction is intended to be followed by reconstruction. Like, like, we sort of, we have to wrestle with what we believe and what we've been handed, but eventually it has to land our feet somewhere. So instead of saying, like, to, to doubt is more intellectually superior, I want to say what Tim Keller said, which is, doubt your doubts, Doubt your doubts. And what he meant by that was to allow your doubts to drive you to find answers. Allow your doubts to sort of get like a pebble in your shoe that you don't ignore, but that you pursue. Study the evidence. Look at the life of Jesus. Study the evidence for the resurrection. It is amazing, secular and religious, that point to the fact that Jesus really did die and he really was raised. And the question is, what are you going to do with that? But then look at people's lives, look at people's lives who flourish, look at people's lives who are full of joy and assess what their life looks like. Don't just die in your doubts, let your doubts point you to the truth. And friends, the truth is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I think what Peter would say is also, like let his words ring around in your soul and see what they do to you. See what they do to you. Because he would say, your, li- your words created new life in me. See, Peter's statement that Jesus is the Holy One of God is a statement that Jesus is Lord. And that's where he's inviting us to land as well. Not only dependent on spirit, but devoted to Jesus. Dependent on spirit and devoted to Jesus. But before we say yes to that, we have to come to terms with what Jesus is asking. Like if somebody's Lord and they're God, the question is, will we obey? Like, will we eat his flesh and drink his blood? Will we take him as our bread? Will we follow him even when we don't agree with him? See, see one of the ways you can know if Jesus is Lord is if when you agree with Jesus, he wins. We disagree, sorry. When you disagree, you're like, what? When you disagree with Jesus, he wins wins. See, Jesus does not present the option of thinking that he's a good teacher or a nice man. He does not present that option. His teaching created a dividing line back then and today. Will you stay or will you go? You either follow him or you desert him. There was no third option. There's no third option. And Jesus made that point pretty clear with the end of this teaching. It says that he answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet, one of you is a devil. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? This is the same type of thing that he says to Peter. Um, Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, I've been thinking all week about the fine line between Judas and Simon Peter. Like, really, what's the difference? Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. Just a few chapters, Peter's going to say, Jesus of Nazareth? Never heard of him. Never, never knew him. So, so what's the difference? I think the difference is in verse 68 and verse 69. In verse 68, Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And even when he denies Jesus, I believe that that conviction is still residual in his soul. He is denying Jesus out of fear, but he hasn't let go of that kernel or that seed of faith. But second, did you catch his affirmation? You are the Holy One. You are God. And we've come to trust and believe and know and experience that that is absolutely true. And so when Peter denies Jesus, those words, where else can we go? You are the Holy One of God. Both hold him and they haunt him because they're still true. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter believes even when he fails. And the same decision is in front of us today. It, it, here's, a, here's, the, here's the decision we have to make. Jesus calls us to follow him. But we must decide if we believe. And you know why I love the story of Peter? It is because Peter shows us that to walk with Jesus does not mean we walk in perfection. Amen? Amen. To walk with Jesus does not mean that we get it right every single time and stick the dismount. That we are going to fail and we are going to come up short and we are going to blow it massively. But when, he, when we are faithless, he is still faithful. Amen? And even when there's just that kernel of faith that remains, Jesus still holds us fast. I love it because Peter shows us that walking with Jesus is not about perfection. It's about redemption of our pain and our failures and our sorrows, that that's what it means to throw our lives on his grace and mercy and say, where else can we go? Does that offend you? Are, are you going to leave? The year was 1519 when Spanish explorer Hernan Cortez landed on the shores of Mexico. He set out with 11 ships, 13 horses, 110 sailors, and 553 soldiers. And he set out to do something that people had failed at doing for years. There were 5 million people waiting for him, and he had this little army to go. And so right when they hit the land. The story goes that Cortez gathered a few of his core men around and he said to them, I want you to go out and I want you all 11 of those ships, I want you to burn the ships. 
I want you to, to light them on fire. And it was his way of saying, from this moment forward, there's no going back. From this moment forward, there is no turning around. And I think that Peter has that moment in this text. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's the same thing that happened when a man and a woman stand before each other and commit to each other in covenantal marriage. They take a vow and they say, I am forsaking all others and keeping myself only unto you. I've burned the ships. And that's what Peter does. Where else can we go? So here's my question. Have you, have you burned the ships? Have you said, Jesus, even when I don't understand, I still believe. Have you said, Jesus, even when I, I want you to do one thing and you do another, are you willing to look back at him and say, I don't get it, but I do believe that you have the words of eternal life. Have you burned the ships? Have you said back to him, I am in, you have all of me. See, here's the deal, you guys. Jesus is not interested in gathering a crowd. He's interested in building disciples. People who would say, I'm dependent on your spirit because my flesh offers nothing. And people who would say, Jesus, I'm devoted to you because you are Lord and you are Savior. And when we disagree, I choose you. That's what he's looking for. And that's the DTR that I think he wants to have with every single one of us today. And maybe it's just to reaffirm, I believe you are who you say you are. You have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? And maybe it's to say it for the very first time. Are you offended? Are you gonna leave? Or can you echo what Peter said? Where else can we go? You have the words of life. What, what a perfect way to be led to the communion table because this is where we eat his flesh and drink his blood. In a metaphorical sense, we're reminded that we're invited to feast on Jesus, that he alone is our provision for the forgiveness of sins. Our flesh offers nothing except the need for his forgiveness. His spirit though, his spirit through his words is life and light and peace. And for 2000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around this table to declare that he is Lord around this table to declare that we're burning the ships, around this table to declare we're forsaking all others, around this table to declare, Jesus, we are following you not as your fans, but as your disciples. We're in. That's what we say at this table. Let me invite you to put your things away if you haven't already. And, and I invite you to just bow your head. Let's just spend a few moments asking the, the spirit to search us and know us? Are there any corners of your life that you're saying, uh, this part's mine. The rest of it's yours, Jesus, but this part's mine. And maybe today you just open your hands fully. Are there any ways you're saying, God, I've got this. Thank you very much. I've got this, I'll figure this one out. 
maybe today you just say, I just depend on your spirit, Lord. Jesus, we come before you as your called out people to say back to you, we've got nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. So even when we don't fully understand, and even when your agenda seems different than our desires, we'd say back to you, you're our Lord. We trust you, dependent on our spirit, devoted to you, Jesus. Meet us at the table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need um, communion elements, if you could just raise your hand, we'll have some of our ushers bring them by. Got a few right here. Table's open to any who are followers of Jesus. If that's you, we invite you to partake today. If not, I would just invite you to let um, this moment um, be one of reflection for you. But if it's not you, I think you're here today to have a DTR with Jesus. And maybe today you would say back to him, I do believe. I believe that you have come and lived and died, paid the penalty for my sin, that you died and that you rose again so that we might have life and life eternal in you. And I believe that you've sent your spirit to live inside of me. I, I do believe, where else can I go to find that kind of life? And if you say that back to Jesus, he would say to you, you're one of my children, come to my table and feast on me. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered his disciples around the table and he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, eat my flesh, that's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup gave thanks and he said, this cup is the new covenant which is made in my blood. Drink my blood. A covenant of forgiveness, a covenant of grace, a covenant of mercy, a covenant that recognizes that our flesh is unable, but that he is gracious and good. This is the new covenant which is made in my blood. Jesus said, do this in remembrance. thank you. We worship you today. We've come to know and believe that you are the Holy One, the Son of God, and you're stronger than any of our doubts and any of our pain and any of our failures. You are stronger. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. 
For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.